podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey everyone, Ben here. You were expecting the intro music, weren't you? It's coming. So is my interview with the fascinating Grandmaster David Smurden. But first, a couple things I wanted to mention. So I just finished a good book about marketing. It wasn't directly related to the podcast, but basically the gist of it that I took home was I need to be looking to increase listener engagement. Are you guys engaged? The book sort of suggested no matter how engaged you are, you could be more engaged. So here we are, engaging. So the first thing I did was I had gotten an email from a listener named Stephen, whose full name I'm not going to use because I didn't ask his permission. But Stephen mentioned that he really likes the book recommendations, but he listens to the podcast on the go. So it would be helpful for him if they were all listed somewhere. So you know what? I did it. I made a list on my webpage. Uh, Go to perpetualchesspod.com, and then you can find the link from there. Every guest that has been on the show who has suggested a book or written a book, I endeavor to list all of the books. I love you guys, but I didn't yet re-listen to the 40 hours of podcast in order to make this list. It's from memory, so I'm sure I'm missing a few. Email me and let me know if you can think of them. But anyway, ordering the books is a good thing to do, even if you're like Pontus Carlson and the books just pile up and pile up. That happens to me too. But it supports chess. It supports the authors. I'm going to get a small kickback if you were to happen to order it through the site. The fee is pretty nominal, but hey, I can, I can buy my son a Snickers or something like that. Nothing wrong with that. So thanks for that. Other ideas are join the Facebook group. If you search Perpetual Chess within Facebook, you'll find it. I put a post up every episode, and sometimes people weigh in and discuss it, talk about the guests, stuff like that. A few of the guests have popped on, so you can check that out. You can also look for me on Twitter at Beneficial1. I'm on Twitter more than is healthy. I mostly tweet about chess and the podcast. I try not to tweet about Donald Trump or the ascendant Philadelphia 76ers or other topics of interest to me. I try not to tweet about them too much. So check that out as well. The chess world is small, so I want perpetual chess listeners to feel like a community. So any way you want to reach out, I'm always happy to hear from you all. So that's all I have to say for now. So um, sit back and enjoy the interview with the brilliant David Smerdin. Thanks. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Australian Grandmaster David Smerdin, number two in Australia, but joining us from Milan, Italy. David, thanks a lot for coming on Perpetual Chess. No worries. Thanks for inviting me. So I've been a fan of yours for a while, David. I mean, you know, I've heard of a lot of Grandmasters, so you were sort of on my radar vaguely. But then uh, in the most recent Olympiad, you played Magnus Carlsen and gave a little interview with FM Mike Klein, and you gave sort of you you managed to draw him, uh, which you know for any of us listening basically would be an amazing accomplishment. And you gave a sort of everyman perspective, and from that point forward, I've been following your blog and your career, uh, and I'm a fan of yours. Well, that's uh, <laughs> that's nice to hear. Not too many people say that because I'm not a professional chess player, but um, yeah, but I'm also a fan of yours, you know, Ben, I, I, I really think that the podcast is uh, 
fantastic. And uh, we were just saying off air before that, in particular, the personalities that you've got on here would be, if I was to run a podcast, that would sort of be the selection of people I'd choose. So, uh, there you go. The the fandom is mutual. Oh, well, well thanks. And also, <laughs> I guess uh, congratulations are in order because uh, you're an academic and I know it's a it's a tough field trying to trying to land a job and you have succeeded. So, could you yeah. tell our listeners a little about it? Um, yeah, well, uh, I'm a little bit more relaxed now than I was uh, last month in May because in uh, in one week I had uh, I had my PhD defense, my marriage, and just before it my bachelor party all crammed into six days. So that was uh, it was an epic week, and uh, the sort of the the upshot from it all from the the PhD perspective is that I'm moving back to Australia. Uh, I've been in Europe for five going on six years now um but i got a job back in brisbane my hometown so yeah so moving back there in uh, at the end of the year yeah that's an amazing coup i'm sure to, to go back to your hometown after so much travel over the years yeah it was sort of almost a little bit by accident that uh, i ended up getting the job there because the the job market for academics in economics is kind of brutal you have this worldwide job market so i had that in chicago in january when it was sort of absolutely freezing running around doing interviews for jobs in countries sort of scattered around the world um obviously a little bit of a a personal preference for australia but also looking around europe and yeah this is just the way the cards landed i guess and you mentioned on your blog you you were in chicago as well yeah so the way that the the job market works is is pretty crazy because uh, people who finished their PhD and also people who finished it a few years before, they all apply to about a thousand publicly listed jobs from different institutions, universities, some of the big uh, things like the UN and whatever. And uh, if, if you get your interviews, then they all happen in the same city at the same time during this massive conference for economists and people in finance. So uh, every year it's in January in the state somewhere. So it's always always cold and Chicago was freezing and you sort of run between hotel to hotel room uh, doing interviews with different uh, different companies or universities. Um, quite, a, quite a fun experience at the end of it, but at the time, obviously, you can imagine pretty stressful as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what's, what's the climate like in Brisbane? Much, <laughs> much better than Chicago, I can okay. say. I mean, so Brisbane is uh, uh, north of Sydney and Melbourne. Um, so it's the third biggest city in Australia, and it's sort of got a much warmer climate. So heading up into Queensland, it's got more of a tropical climate, very mild winters, sort of glorious summers. The uh, tourism slogan is um, beautiful one day, perfect the next. So that gives you some sort of idea. Wow. Sounds good to me. Yeah. I've been to, I've been to Melbourne and Sydney, but I didn't make it to Brisbane. Um, but uh, I, I would love to go sometime. Um, oh, you can come visit me. All right. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so you've also been, I know that the economics is your, your primary interest or development economics, and, and we'll get into that in, in a bit. But this is a chess podcast. And actually, you know, I have a long list of potential guests and you're on it. But what, what made me think... What made me think of you right now is you you made a rare appearance on Twitter. <laughs> you, uh, <laughs> you you popped in to defend Magnus, and it's kind of uh, swirling in the chess culture right now. Everyone's talking about, uh, you know, he had his little argument with Maurice Ashley, and everyone seems to think it's some sort of existential crisis that the guy has like a 2750 performance rating instead of 2850, <laughs> like usual. Uh, so what's, what's your opinion on all this? 
Yeah, I, uh, well, I think people made a big deal out of something that wasn't really a big deal. You know, so Maurice, I have, I have a lot of respect for both of these guys for different reasons. And Maurice, he makes chess interesting, particularly for the masses. A lot of these interviews and co- commentary segments can be, uh, you know, completely dirt dry. And he's he's being one of the contributors, particularly in the US, to bringing chess to that level of media popularity. But one of the side effects of that is he does try to get a rise out of people a bit. You know, he pokes and prods. And I think in in this interview, it wasn't what was said in the interview, but apparently, according to Magnus and others, what was sort of said beforehand, nothing too, too harsh, but really trying to make a big deal about uh, – of the champs on a slide and Grizzchuk could now be the favorite and so forth. And Magnus has probably been under a lot of pressure recently because of his exceptionally high standards that he holds himself to. So he reacted, he, he took the bait. I mean, at the end of the day, it was just such a nothing clip that the chess world decided to go crazy talking about. <laughs> right. But I think that the point that I wanted to make on Twitter was that we really shouldn't make a big deal about this slump that they call about Magnus because he's just been at the top for so long and that's what Wesley so when someone tried to sort of uh, bait him in an interview question he said sort of the same thing uh, and and Kramnik also defended Magnus when someone interviewed him and said hey Kramnik you know you're almost number one they both said the same thing which is that you know, Magnus has been there for so long at the top that's really the measure that that counts and of course there are going to be some swings along the way but let's not let's not get too excited about this. Right, yeah, and I know that that you studied some behavioral economics, so uh, the 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 problem of recency bias definitely comes to mind. Yeah, um, exactly. And and you see it in sports too. Like uh, I'm, I I get the sense you might be a football, not American football, but proper football fan. And, <laughs> sure. And I follow it a little bit, but I'm a bigger NBA fan. And I remember this year when, when Cleveland uh, had a little slump in the middle of the season. You know, they basically they play 82 games when everyone knows who's going to play in the championship. And, you know, so mm-hmm. they didn't play at peak performance throughout the season. And there was a period where everyone was in a panic that, like, you know, things are falling apart, basically. And, you know, that narrative happens in every sport every year. And it seems chess is no exception. Yeah, you're exactly right. You see it in in tennis as well when some of the top guys have a bad game every now and then. But, I mean, if you look at, I think, uh, well, at Andy Murray at the moment in the tennis world, he's had a couple of what he'd call failures because he didn't make to whatever the final of the French Open or something. But he's still number one at the end of the day. And uh, people seem to respect that, that he's now been there for a while. And it was the case before with Federer and Nadal and so forth. Uh, To me, I guess the most important thing is when I look at the games, it's the quality of the play. I really try to pay a lot of attention to that. And actually now in my economics, I'm actually doing a little bit of research in the chess realm, which is curious for me. And one of the things I'm really interested in is not just the results, but looking at how closely a person's play sort of matches engine perfection. And I have to say, Magnus, you know, even in, well, in the Paris Grand Prix, for example, it was only blitz and rapid, but the quality of his play was all around pretty good. So <laughs> I guess I guess the proof will be in the pudding in the coming months. We'll see what happens. Yeah. So so could you tell us a little bit more about that study? It sounds interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I got some good advice uh, recently as I've sort of been struggling to make my way in, in economics because, you know, I really love economics and I love what I do, but at the end of the day, I'm a sort of a 2000 rated academic. <laughs> and it's, it's a bit hard, you know, after you've come from the chess world for your ego to try and build up. But someone said to me that when you're a young researcher, you should really try to 
start out combi- working on areas that you know a lot about from your personal life. And in my case, it's pretty much chess. So I started looking at that and found out that there's actually a lot of researchers around the world from different fields, computer programming and sociology and some other, even gender studies have been looking at the chess world. So uh, I've started looking at that a bit now, particularly in the case of behavioral economics. You can imagine that a lot of these human traits that, you know, this, this sort of well-known book now, Thinking Fast and Slow, talks yeah. about, you can imagine they play a big role in chess. So now, you know, I've got these, well, the databases that we use every day in chess, I'm trying to sort of look at that from a more statistical point of view rather than from a, a chess point of view and uh, look at some of the ways or some of the factors that make people better or worse in, in their performances. Okay. So so are you familiar with this CAP system that chess.com released like about a year I ago? I am. Okay. Yeah. Is yeah. that is that what you're using or uh, something else? Well, there's actually there's different um, different methodologies that pretty much all boil down to the same thing. So chess.coms was uh, well, it's it's particularly focused around cheating detection as one of its main um, main aims. Uh, but the the bare bones of it is the same sort of thing, comparing the quality of a person's play to what engines do. Uh, Ken, Ken Regan, with his work for the FIDE Commission on Cheating, has something similar. And now researchers, some different researchers, particularly some um, sort of high-level computer programmers, have been looking at it for uh, yeah, different ways to measure who's the best player of all time and all that sort of stuff. But they all pretty much the same thing. It's just comparing uh, good engine play to what humans are doing. Okay. Um yeah, it sounds interesting. Um, we'll uh, we'll have to keep an eye on your blog and stuff. Are you gonna <laughs> sure. Are you gonna keep blogging now that uh now that your your academic search has settled down? Yeah, I got a bit. I wouldn't say lazy. I got lazy on the blog for a <laughs> while because I was so busy with everything else. But uh, I really like writing. Actually, in school, that's what I was best at. It wasn't math or anything like that. So uh, I'm. I think I'm going to keep that going, um, particularly because it helps to keep academics grounded as well, I think. We can sort of get caught up in our world of talking and all this jargon. I think it's really important when we work on a project to remember or to keep in mind how it can be used in the real world rather than just uh, impressing other academics. And somehow writing a blog for me sort of keeps me connected. So um, I think I'll keep it going. Excellent. And for any listeners who haven't checked it out, I definitely recommend it. Um, I haven't even gone through the whole archive yet. I mean, like I said, I've been following you since the Olympia, but it appears you've been blogging for like seven years or something. Yeah, for a long time, but uh, it's uh, it's good you haven't gone through the archive yet because I just I just moved servers and somehow I messed it up, so all the images are missing at the moment. Oh, so okay. I've, I've got to go back and fix it, but uh, it should in a week or so it should be back to its normal self. Okay, that's funny. Um, so, David, why don't we get into your own chess background a little bit? Um, sure. Tell us about your uh, your youth in in um, Brisbane. Yeah, well, I guess you can imagine. I mean, Australia is so far away from everywhere. Um, and uh, back uh, when I was a kid, the world wasn't as, as connected as it is now. So um, I guess Australia was sort of the backwaters of, of chess in a way. Um, we had this one reasonably famous grandmaster, Ian Rogers, who's retired from chess but is still sort of active in, in promoting chess in Australia. Um, but uh, other than that, we weren't really featuring at all on the world stage um, but I was very lucky because if you come from a, a country where chess is not that big, you've got better chances to, say, win your your national age titles, which mean you can go to the World 
championships. So when I was nine, I got to go to the World Under 10 Championships, which was a big deal for me. That was in, in Hungary where um, there was Peter Leko playing and Svidler and so forth. And uh, I had a – yeah, that was a big eye-opener for me. And so I, I kept going with chess in Australia along with all the typical sports that us Australians are sort of forced to do huh. and uh, uh, really got a love for it and – um, yeah, I mean, so I had a couple of good results, but I didn't actually get the Grandmaster title until I was a fair bit older. It was, I think I was, was 24 at the time. Um, so it took, I actually got the three norms when I was about uh, 20, but then it took me uh, quite a while to get over 2,500. Um, but around about this time in my life, I'd sort of decided that uh, chess wasn't going to be my profession. Um, so uh, while I've done sort of a few things in the chess world with commentary and writing books and so forth uh i think i never really had any aspirations to do it full time so why did uh what made you come to that decision uh yeah it's a it's a good question i think the main thing is that i really love chess and i didn't want to lose that uh, you can imagine growing up with uh, a lot of a lot of my peers and seeing them from the age of nine basically at these world junior events i've watched their path to becoming chess professionals and it was for a lot of them from different countries it was already a given that this was the path they were going to go down and it made sense in some of these countries there were sort of less attractive career opportunities if you went to university than perhaps in in australia um and it becomes it becomes hard work you know when you lose a little bit of the love for the game uh well you can lose a little bit of the love for the game. And for me, I like playing crazy dubious openings. And <laughs> I, I like going to cafes and bars and, and uh, you know, hustling people, coffee house style. And I like playing bug house and uh, all these sort of things. Um, you can see from my opening repertoire that <laughs> I'm not, I don't have a professional opening repertoire. But most importantly, I guess, is that I really love um, other things in life that have high priority to me. I think with chess, you really have to immerse yourself 100% and shutting yourself off from the West of the world and, and politics and, and policy issues uh, is almost a good thing for your profession. Whereas for me, I've always been really involved in social policy and things like that and wanted to contribute in that area. That's really been a big driver for me. So it's like these, these two factors, a push and a pull factor. One that I I really wanted to contribute in, in different ways to um, society. And the other, I didn't want to lose the love for chess. And so the compromise that I've come up with kind of enables me to do both, I guess. Yeah, uh, that's that's understandable. And you do do a good job. I mean, especially because I get the, you know, it, get the impression you're pretty stretched for time. But you do a good job <laughs> uh, contributing to the discourse in, in the chess world. Um, you, you know, when there's controversies like this silly one with Magnus or like, you know, more serious ones, it seems like you, you managed to make your voice heard. And, you know, you probably have more perspective, like since you're studying uh, different subjects than, than some other people who are just knee deep in chess might. Yeah, in, yeah, in a way, that's true. I mean, I've tried to sort of create some synergies between my, my chess skills and my research skills. And there's a surprising amount of overlap, actually, which is good. I, I tend to not want to get involved in for example, chess politics too much if it's something that I don't know much about or can't contribute to. So if it's something to do with, say, um, I don't know, FIDE politics or something like this, it's, it's something that I don't really know very much about, so I tend to keep my opinions to myself. But when a debate might crop up about uh, are women as good as, at chess as men or something like this, something where as a researcher I can actually 
add some meaningful statistics to the debate, then I, I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind writing something about it. Right. And speaking of that topic, I know you had a blog post about that, and you linked to um, you linked to a study uh, that basically tackled this question. So, could you try to explain to our listeners in sort of layman's terms uh, what what the conclusion of that study was, and sort of the the thesis of the blog post you wrote? Oh, you put me on the spot now about. <laughs> well, the study. You, you know, you just you just defended your thesis, so this is this is child's play in comparison. Yeah, well, the thing is that uh, there's actually there's actually been quite a lot of um, research done on the topic of gender in chess, and actually subsequent to that blog post and that sort of debate that was sparked by by Nigel um, Short, there's been some. Uh, more research done about that. Actually, some some economists recently, combined with some computer programmers, uh, and sort of backed a little bit by Google, have very recently come out with some more research about women in chess. So there's there's a lot of stuff being done in this area. That's um, to me, it's very interesting because most of the economic world or the academic world doesn't focus on the chess research that much because things only come out once every now and then. And for some reason, the chess world also doesn't get wind of it. So these things kind of uh, float in the ether a bit. But uh, for me, uh, when I come across these things, I'd like to make them known. So now's a good chance for me to tell you about this most most recent study. But just quickly to what you said before, the, the general consensus in the academic world or the research world about um, gender in chess is that it was largely driven by participation. So the fact that girls might be discouraged from playing chess um, as they're growing up and we've got less girls playing from a younger age, that pretty much explains most of the rating gap that we have. And we shouldn't really be talking about the extremes of the distribution because we know the extremes are unreliable. So we're not really talking about the number of women in the top 20 in the world or something like that. But across the board, there doesn't seem to be any biological sort of basis for things. Um, so that, that was the general thesis. But then there's recent research, which I found fascinating, was they actually looked at, at what happens when uh, women play against men versus when women play against uh, other women. And they found something really interesting where they're looking at the quality of play, so within the game, so how closely you're matching the best moves of engines. And the, the general conclusion they came up with is that uh, you take your average, say, um, 2,000 plus rated female. When she plays against a man, she te- seems to play slightly lower quality moves on average than if she plays against another woman. And their explanation for that is, is this big sort of research area that uh, women have problems uh, in competitive environment with other men. Maybe you find this in sort of uh, math tests in school and in sometimes in the workplace when trying to get promotions and so forth. So that was their explanation. And to me, I find that a far more interesting question than this sort of reasonably archaic issue about the biological strengths. Okay. Yeah. Um, thank you for, for the explainer. Um, so <laughs> do you have opinions about like, should women? So I guess that would suggest that uh, that would be an argument for women continuing to have separate events. Um, do you have an opinion about like separate events and separate titles and all that stuff? Um, yeah, I have. I mean, so I have opinions about these, but again, you know, <laughs> I may not be that well versed in 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 giving them. Um, but the the competition argument does seem to suggest that. Well, and also the participation type argument seems to suggest that having women's titles is not such a bad thing because the number one thing we want to do is 
we don't want women to get discouraged from playing chess when they're younger just because it's a competitive male environment. So that that's some sort of justification for keeping uh, women's women's titles, I guess. But um, the fact that women seem to play better against other women than against men, I don't think we really understand fully what the reasons are behind this. And if it is because women feel somehow intimidated by an overly um, macho environment in the chess world, then that's okay. That's something that we can try to address one way or the other. But yeah, I, I'm hesitant to give an opinion because I don't, I don't think we understand the reasons um, behind this finding yet. And, and I certainly don't, don't know them well enough. Okay. Um, so why don't we, uh, you, you've taken us through your, your childhood in chess, uh, um, could you give us a broader perspective? And you mentioned Ian Rogers, who I think a lot of listeners have heard of and is well known. But what else is happening with uh, with chess in Australia? Yeah, so you're you're asking the Aussie who's been living in <laughs> right. Europe for the past five years. But you did um, play on the Olympiad team, so yeah. Uh, well, I can tell you, I can tell you one thing. When I played my first Olympiad, uh, there were six of us in the team, and I was me and my. Uh, well, one of my peers, we were the two youngest by far on the team. That was back in 2004 in, in Calvia in, in Spain. The last two Olympiads, I've been the oldest guy in the team. So that gives you sort of an idea about how things change. In fact, if you take me out of the team, um, I think uh, three years ago, we had an average age of 21 and now it's gone up to 23 or something like this. So it's a, a bunch of young kids. We've got one of the most talented juniors in the world, Anton Smirnov, who's just become a grandmaster. He's 15 years old. Wow. And um, a lot of other guys sort of around that uh, 18 to 22-year uh, sort of uh, mark who are picking up GM norms left, right, and center. So there's a lot of action happening in Australia in the junior ranks. And to be honest, I think there's two factors for it. One is that the world is just so much better connected now. We've got access to a lot of online resources. You can get high-quality Skype coaching even if you're in Australia. So that's a, a big deal. And the second, I don't want to, um, you, you know, embarrass him too much, but Ian Rogers, when he retired from chess and he kept the same passion for the game and the same energy and he put most of it into um, coaching and promoting chess in Australia. And together with his, his wife, uh, Kathy Rogers, who's also quite involved, I think that the two of them have been a pretty big uh, driving force in promoting chess. So when I get back to Australia, uh, my life's going to be a lot more difficult playing these weekenders than it was when <laughs> I left, that's for sure. Right. Well, that's probably a good thing in your mind, I would I would think. Yeah, yeah. So what does, uh, what does Ian Rogers like... Uh, what does he do? Does he had a foundation or have a chess school or like how is uh how is the program that's helping all these kids structured? If you know, well, I can I, I sort of vaguely know. But, okay. uh, I'm not I'm not too um, I might get some of the acronyms wrong and so forth. But we have this sort of Australian junior uh, squad now that our talented juniors sort of get put into and they have these regular meetups in cities around Australia and Ian Rogers is heavily involved with uh, organising and also coaching at these squads and he's been very instrumental in getting the other top players and the older players there as coaches as well um, raising funds as well, he's also involved in the selection for, um, for all sorts of events so before we used to send one player in each age group from each gender to the World Youth uh, Championships, but now there's also the World uh, Youth Olympiads and Asian Junior Championships, which normally weren't such a priority for Australia, but he's sort of been 
been driving that as well. And he's also always at the Olympiads with his wife. Um, sometimes, well, I think the last two Olympiads, he was the captain of the Australian women's team, actually. Um, so he's been, uh, he's, he's wearing a lot of hats in the chess world, as well as being a full-time uh, chess journalist and uh, writing up different articles. So, uh, and, and coaching chess as well. I think he basically does it all. Okay. Um, and do you, I know that, <laughs> I know that you're very busy. So do you do any chess teaching? No, I get a lot of um, a lot of requests for coaching, but it's something that I've pretty much had to shelve because of my time constraints. One thing that I do do every now and then is a bit of uh, online chess commentary, which I really love. Um, and the second is a bit of online banter blitz. You know, there's a right. few servers now that do these video banter blitz. And uh, as I mentioned before, the sort of chess that I like is basically going to cafes and coffee houses and sledging, you know, having this banter with people. And I get to do that and get paid for it. So that's, uh, that's something that I, I keep my hand in. Nice. Yeah, I had a question about, about your chess style because I haven't made like a, a big study of your games. But you mentioned on your blog that you're, you're an attacking player. But in your Olympiad recap, you also say that you were sort of selected as the first board mainly for your ability to, to hold down the fort against the 2700s and maybe hold a draw. So I was, I was a little... I had some trouble reconciling those two styles. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not so much that they're two styles. It's they're two attributes of a player, I think. So if you want to, I mean, if you get paired against a really strong player and you want to make a draw, playing sort of solid, holding down the fort and uh, trying to swap off pieces, that's typically a bad way to go about things. You, As long as the game is under control for the other guy, the stronger player, it's it's pretty likely that he's going to squeeze you. It's sort of basic psychology. So I try to unbalance my opponents as much as possible, whether I'm playing a weaker player uh, or a stronger player. So my game against Magnus, I sacrificed one pawn, offered a second one, ended up sacrificing in exchange. Um, when I when I drew with Aronian, it was the same thing. I played a very dodgy opening in the beginning <laughs> and I sacrificed the exchange on move 12 or something like this. Um, this has sort of been my... Uh, attitude against the stronger players um, did the same against Ivanchuk and the games all end up in in draws but it's not because I'm playing super solid it's because uh, for me this is when I'm playing at my best and when you play against one of these guys who are professionals and who've studied chess all day long and they've got their seconds working for them full time the best thing to do to maximize your chances is to try and get you both as unsettled as possible as quickly as possible Oh wow, that's that's a really a really good insight. So when you're playing these games, do you have like a voice in your head that's telling you like play safe, play safe, or are you just able to just is it <laughs> is it natural to you to just let it fly? It, no, it used to be the case for sure that I think we all have this voice because humans, by our nature, are risk averse creatures. I mean, it's behavioral economics one on one basically, and these are some of the things that poker players have to learn to uh, to. To shelve to get rid of. I think I think you were you were a poker player for many years, right? So right. Yeah. You you also know about this that we've got these natural impulses that if we want to be successful, we've got to get rid of them. Um, right. Investment bankers and traders have the same sort of thing. So uh, for me, it actually came about. Well, I always loved to to take risks when I was younger, but then I I but the risk aversion kicked in as I got a bit older. But it was once I took up this particular opening, the Portuguese gambit for black. Um, against e4 and once that became my standard there's absolutely no way to play this in a safe way if you don't 
throw all your cards in or whatever you say, all your chips in. Sorry, I'm not a poker player. I'm trying to use the terms. <laughs> right. Poker players misuse them too. So. <laughs> that makes me feel a bit better. But if you don't burn your bridges, let's just say that. If you don't burn your bridges and just go for it, the opening just doesn't work. So that was a, that was a real crash course in trying to get rid of these um, behavioral biases that I had before. Nice. And I would imagine it's good advice for anyone playing someone higher rated. So even, you know, you're a 2,500 playing a 2,750 or whatever. But mm. like, I, would you say it applies across all levels? Like if, a, you know, if I'm playing a 2,500, do a, you know, I should still try to make them uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I know you had Simon Williams on the show. He's kind of a good example for this because if you look at people around Simon's rating, there's very few who've got these 2,700 scalps um, and myself included because Simon's kind of an extreme example. So I've never beaten a 2,700 player, but he's got a couple of huge scalps because he'll just go for it. That's his style no matter what. He's all in from the get-go, white, black, whatever your rating is. And it means that he loses to a couple of, you know, 2100s every now and then. But he's also going to have these these poster games that he can uh, <laughs> he can add to his resume. Yeah, exactly. I think I may have told the story when Simon was a guest. But the, the way I originally met him was in the Reykjavik Open. And, and he knew he was playing Ivan Sokolov the night before. And he had mm. black. And he was just basically like out drinking, cursing up a storm, talking about how he's going to play the Dutch. He doesn't care how unsound people say it is. And, <laughs> and of course, the, the next day, he got that scalp. And that video is now memorialized on chess.com. That game uh-huh. is. So yeah. it's... Yeah. It's funny. I can definitely vouch for that. Yeah. But just, just to quickly go back to your, your question about, you know, when, when club players play against someone stronger, does the same advice apply? Uh, it's absolutely true. And I think at, at sort of weaker levels as well, the natural impulse to try and play conservatively and, and solidly and, and correct chess against um, your stronger opponents especially to play for a draw from the start. That's the biggest mistake that you can make because I've seen so many games. Also, when I've been on the stronger side, my opponent's just trying to trade off all the pieces as quickly as possible, as solidly as possible, complication averse, stay away from tactics. And every trade increases my advantage by just a little bit, you know, maybe 0.1, 0.2 of a pawn. And by the time we get to an end game, uh, they might think, phew, I've made it to an end game against the Grandmaster but it's just a lost end game, you know, right. because they, they've just been drifting like the frog in the water. So uh, <laughs> my, my biggest advice, particularly if you, if you want to improve and you, you're a young player or you're young at heart and you want to get better, is just don't be scared of who you're playing. Play a natural game. Uh, and if, if you're an attacking player, play an attacking game. You know, who cares? I actually, when I played the game against Aronian and I saw the exchange sacrifice that was too difficult to complicate and quite unsound, I spent... I guess, you know, close to half an hour on this move. And when I got into time trouble later, I really regretted it because I knew that I was going to play the move after about two minutes. But That's very I just funny. couldn't bring myself to do it, you know. That's funny. When I had Sam Shanklin on, he gave that exact advice. He said, don't spend 25 minutes on a move because you know mm. what you're going to play. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So were your... I mean, a lot of listeners, obviously, to this podcast will will never have the experience of playing guys like that, myself included. So uh, I'm just curious, were your nerves especially acute for games like that? Uh, Yeah, for sure. Also because they were all basically in team events. Um, I mean, that's the the only chance that a guy like me is going to get to play against these guys because they don't play 
big opens most of the time. But uh, if Australia is paired with Norway or Australia is paired with Armenia, then suddenly I get this rare opportunity. But then it also means that my result does affect the team as well. So uh, there's that and also the fact that, well, particularly in the game against Magnus, I've never had the experience of playing with literally 20 cameras on you for the, the right. entire game. So, um, yeah, there's. I don't think there's any advice that I can give on how to get over the nerves because I'm a huge victim myself. Well, obviously, if you, you know, you drew him and, and you took your shots. So I, I think you found a way to battle them a little bit. So well. I commend you for that. <laughs> um, so do you think you'll be able to keep playing Olympiads with your uh, new upcoming job? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I think my, my, my rating is good enough that I... I should be in the team without any problems, but there's also, I feel a little bit of guilt if I take a spot because the young guys in Australia, they're, uh, a lot of them have aspirations to become professional as their full-time career, and they're really hungry as well. And even if their strength may not be uh, quite up to mine just yet, there's no question in my mind that they're on this upward trajectory. So I almost feel some obligation to, um, to step aside. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure um, what I'm going to do uh, come the next Olympiad. But there is also some potential in the future that I might move into more of a, a support role as well because I do have a fair bit of pride in our national team and our team has been doing better and better each year at the Olympiad. I mean, we're still, you know, far down on the lower boards compared to the US, but uh, I would like to see us, you know, get a top 10 finish at some point. And so I'd like to be involved in some way. Nice, yeah, and I've noticed in in your book reviews, you you do go pretty deep in the weeds on the openings. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably I guess with my sort of research sort of skills now, openings are they're, they're one area where I can I can really contribute. I think, and it's also an area where it doesn't matter if my overall chess skills start to deteriorate, I can still make a bit of a difference. I guess. Right. Cool. Well, well, David, let's get into your your academic research. Um, so you switch. Excuse me. So you switched from uh, behavioral economics to sort of development economics a few years ago. What uh, what drove your interest in in that subject? Uh, yeah, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a complete switch. I kind of do both, um, particularly applying the development sort of stuff, uh, the, the behavioral stuff. Sorry, to the development um, context. I guess yeah, it's going back to my inner motivations, if I can use a cliche. But I've I've always wanted to be involved in. In creating better policies. I used to work for the Australian government where we were involved in policy and particularly, I guess I'm, yeah, you could call me somewhat socially minded, um, but particularly in developing countries, you can imagine that the behavioral biases that, that people have, they play a much bigger role because things like social norms and, and social networks and relying on each other and trusting each other, they play a much bigger role in these countries where they don't have these formal institutions where they don't have a really rigid government and a structured banking system or whatever else. So actually behavioral economics, I think it can do more good um, comparatively in these countries and a lot of these issues I've been interested in for a while. So it was kind of a bit of a natural progression for me, I guess you could say. Okay. And and what was there a moment that, that sparked your interest in immigration? Uh, like how did that become uh, such a topic of interest for you? Yeah, I, I don't think there was a a particular a particular moment necessarily. Um, yeah, I, I so I have some I've had have some friends who are refugees also from 
um, not this current wave of refugees, but sort of going back to so people my age who are refugees. Um, so there is some personal connection to some extent. Actually, I, I made some new friends at the last Olympiad um, from, um, from from the team from Libya, for example, as well, and just just chatting with them, you know, in between the rounds about what they go through. I mean, we're there at the Olympiad. We're all in the same queue to get our coffees and complaining about the food and stuff. And then right. they tell me about what's happening back home and uh, ask about their family. And they say, yeah, my brother's been in jail for four years without trial or something like this. So you hear these things that just, they just don't make any sense in the context of these chess players huddled together in this international community. So uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess we all know people like this and know stories like this to some extent. And, for some reason, they maybe affected me a bit more, but also because I kind of already had the tools at my disposal to, to to do something, I guess, proactive. So I thought that I, I'd probably better make use of it. Nice. And do you think there'll be... So you've done like uh, studies with indigenous people in Australia, and you lived in, in Peru for a bit? Uh, yeah, for, for a little bit. Um, well, teaching a teaching sort of a grassroots uh, charity there. Yeah. Wow! And uh, do you think that there will be a lot of travel once you settle down into your your professor track, or will you be staying put more often? Uh, I think there'll still be a fair bit actually, because most of my well, my current wave of research is based in in developing countries. So at the moment, I'm working on a project in Somalia. Wow. Um, that's probably not an area that I'm going to travel to uh, anytime soon, right. as, you, as you can imagine. But uh, I do have a lot of interest in – I think once I move back to Australia, my focus will be a little bit more on developing countries around Australia, Australia so in the Pacific sort of region and, and Southeast Asia. Um, these – yeah, I guess – I mean, these topics really sort of interest me a lot. Um, but on the other hand, I have my other – other arms of research as well, like as I was mentioning, this sort of um, chess analysis. Uh, so that's completely different to development economics. So I've got a couple of different um, interests, I guess. And one of the nice things about being a researcher is that you can pick and choose what you want to work on on a given day. So if if on one day I've been working really hard, particularly – so at the moment I'm working on women's issues in Somalia and the days can get quite depressing after a long day of research. So the next day I might say, today I'm just working on my chest stuff and nice. that's it. And yeah. uh, it's pretty good for the, uh, the sanity. Yeah, that makes sense. And are, are you going to be teaching classes um, in Brisbane yeah. too? Yeah, it's not, uh, it's not decided yet what I'll teach, but I think it would be pretty likely that it will be either behavioral economics or development economics. Okay, nice. And when is the move? Uh, November, I start my position there, so I'll move a little bit before then. Um, yeah, my uh, mum and dad are pretty happy to have me back because I, I think I left when I was 17, so it's been quite a while, oh, 15 wow. years. So uh, there'll be uh, some uh, some readjusting, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And do you have brothers and sisters? I have one sister. Uh, actually, my, my family are all artistic in one way or another. My sister is a professional artist and my mum also and my father is an architect. So they can all draw and uh, my sister is a fantastic painter. But I, ha- I have zero artistic abilities, <laughs> really nothing at all. I'm the economist chess player, so I don't that's, know how that happens. Yeah, that's funny. I'm with you. <laughs> um, cool. And I know, I know, David, you also, you also blog about music. Um, are you still finding the time to check out new music or too too busy? <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah, I don't I don't actually know how it, it happened that I got so into music because 
I'm not I'm not very musical myself, I have to say, but uh, yeah, I really like the uh, the independent music scene. One of the great things about living in Amsterdam is that you had some great bands coming through, and uh, even uh, these yeah little places where local bands and traveling bands they always seem to end up in Amsterdam. So that was really cool. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm still uh, well, you know, it's, it's just my sort of. Uh, hobby on the side but i'm still very much into music yeah nice um and how's life in milan uh different uh, definitely different to amsterdam for sure um the italian culture is something that uh i don't really didn't know too much about besides the stereotypes and they're living up to some of them and to others i was completely wrong so that's uh it's been kind of eye-opening i guess um the life here is kind of um it's uh, hidden a little bit because my my work is pretty intense, and I've learned far more, I guess, about Somalia than I have about Italy. Since okay. Here. <laughs> um, but uh, but it's been really cool. The university here is really great, and the people are very impressive. My Italian has not improved too much, but the the, the food is amazing, and the oh, country's man. got such rich history. So uh, it's been kind of a one last uh, international adventure, I guess, before I I sort of put down roots in Australia. Yeah, well, I mean, it's nice that you're coming home. Um, so, is there anywhere I missed in terms of, of where you, where you've lived? We've got Peru, Amsterdam, uh, Milan. Now, any anywhere else in your travel? Well, I guess Canberra, right? Yeah. Well, I, when I was 17, I moved to Melbourne. So that's where I did my undergraduate. Okay. Um, it it might not seem like a a big move for for non-Australians, but actually it's, you know, a two-hour flight between the two cities, so it's kind of a far, far yeah, distance. Yeah, it's a big um, continent. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'll tell, I'll tell you something a little bit funny about Peru, um, if you got the time. So sure. I, I went there as kind of, uh, there was a small grassroots um, organization, I think it was based out of Chicago, actually, um, in sort of the hills about two hours away from Lima, um, and it was a, a school for, in, in a very poor poor area they sort of um set up some classes for the kids and they wanted a chess teacher um and uh when i when i sort of wrote to them on email and we spoke about it they said yeah you'll have these classes with the kids there and you'll have a teacher with you at all times who can speak spanish so it won't matter that you can't speak spanish and everything will be fine and uh, they kind of oversold it to me a bit <laughs> because so uh I, I read a Spanish phrase book on the flight there, which was my entire knowledge of Spanish. And when I got there I found out that not only was I teaching all the chess classes by myself, but I also had to teach the math classes. I was the full time physical education teacher <laughs> and a stand in dance teacher as well. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. So um I mean the dance classes were actually not that bad because they didn't involve that much talking. So right. I didn't have to try and pretend I could speak Spanish. But of course, I can't dance. So right. that was that issue. Yeah, and nor can I. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, so, but yeah. how did it work out? Did did you manage to teach anything? Yeah. Well, I, I hope so. I certainly tried to learn Spanish in in quick time, and I can say that I can probably speak Spanish if it's only about. Uh, math and chess, then I can do okay. So, right. <laughs> but it was super. It was a super great experience. I have to say that this um, this organization was really great. Um, the the people and the kids in this this area was super friendly and super nice. And the best part, I guess, for me is that now you know it's been five years since I was there, or now even six years. But the chess is still going. Um, oh, wow. I came with a 
I came with a backpack where I had uh, I had three changes of clothes, and the rest of the backpack was full of chess sets that um, one of the uh, Australian um, uh, coaching companies had had donated kindly. So we brought those over, and I brought over a bunch of uh, curricula as well. And so now they're new recruits whenever they get uh, new volunteers, even if they don't know that much about chess besides the moves, they've got a very nice and easily laid out curricula they can use. They've got new chess sets. They've got some clocks. And I see all these pictures. They send me pictures and videos. We even ran a tournament there. So what's what's nice for me is that, you know, I, I, I'm sort of long gone now, but uh, it's, it's kicked on. It's kept going. It hasn't died out. And that makes me happy. Yeah, that must be a good feeling. That's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely one of the the great things about chess. Um, so, yeah, you know, doesn't not a lot of startup costs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, David, I just have a couple more questions. I want to just circle back to chess a little bit. So, sure. so you uh, you um wrote a review of uh, Danny Gormley's sort of uh, uh, his chess memoir, and and in it you had an interesting quote. I thought that that our listeners might might be interested in hearing you talk a little more about. So you said, life as a sub-2600 grandmaster is a paradox. On the one hand, we're revered, admired, often envied within the chess world. On the other, it's hard to justify such genera- Excuse me, such veneration for journeymen who don't even figure in the top 250 for their narrow profession. And it's reflected in how hard it is to make a living from chess. So, <laughs> I mean, so uh, I guess I'd just like to hear you expand on that a little bit. I mean, I don't think it's a, you know, a shock, but it's sort of frank and modest terms so anyway uh could you could you talk about that a little more um <laughs> yeah it's uh i think this is one of the reasons why i i liked danny's book so much because he's a very honest and forthright guy you know he can he can rub people the wrong way but he says exactly what he thinks and um i think that there are some chess fans who aren't that closely connected to the the world of grandmasters who might think that it's sort of a glamorous um profession uh and it is at the top to some extent and we are even myself at my lowly rating you know sometimes i'm treated like a mini celebrity here and there um but the the truth of the matter is that uh it's really scraping a living for most people around this yeah 2500 um, even even today, 2600, early 2600 sort of range, um, and I think uh, I think it was really nice that Danny sort of brought that to light a bit. That life can be a bit tough, but and for me, the paradox I was describing there is the fact that uh, yeah, compared to someone who's say ranked 600 in the world at tennis or 500 in the world at tennis, um, most people don't know their names, and the fans are unlikely to be. Um, writing them emails or asking for their autograph. But in chess, for some reason, that might still happen because of this grandmaster title, this particular two letters that you put in front of your name. And uh, uh, to me, it was just, a, I guess, an interesting paradox that was finally brought to light. Right. Well, well, that's part of it. But I think that also, like, if you look at it on a country-by-country basis, so, okay, you know, you're, you're 300th in the world or whatever it is, but to be second in the country, like, huge continent, you know, that means that everyone in Australia who plays chess is is going to know who you are and going to look up to you. And I mean, I think that's a good thing personally. I mean, I, I get that it's hard yeah. to make. No, you're, you're right. I mean, that's a, so I, I guess I'm a little bit of a unusual case in that, um, that extent, because if you look at the world rating list and you look at the, you know, the five people above me and the five people below me, uh, most of them come from countries where they've got, 
dozens of grandmasters in, in Russia, a hundred grandmasters. So I kind of um, stick out stick out a little bit, which might uh, artificially in, inflate my status a little bit as well. To be <laughs> honest, you know, I mean, a lot of these sort of twenty five hundred Russians won't get the chance to play against Magnus. They'll never get the chance to play in an Olympiad or something, whereas I do get that chance. So there's that. Um, but on the other hand, it, it's a philosophical question about what would have happened to me if I had been born in Russia instead of Australia. I mean, these are all right, things, yeah. I guess, yeah, we'll never know the answer to. Yes, okay. All right, well, th- yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And I guess the one other thing to, to say about it is, I mean, you're. I think things are getting better for chess players who are willing to to teach you know and mm, that's true that's true and uh especially like with with the internet obviously with youtube and stuff like that people who who are willing to share their ideas i think that professional opportunities are a little better but i get yeah. that that you know not everyone who loves to play loves to teach so um yeah, yeah. but you make a good point though because i think uh the term chess professional sort of been uh abused a little bit and now i would i would like to see chess professional uh, yeah more recognition given to all the different ways that people can be just chess professionals because as you say there's a lot of there's a lot more knowledge sharing than there used to be before so many great websites and forums where people contribute and um so many great uh you know twitch streams or youtube videos or whatever Pod- else podcasts podcasts not forget <laughs> the podcast no, right. as i was saying at the outset i mean right. This podcast, this uh, thing that you've got going, it's an idea that I and I'm sure many other people sort of vaguely mulled about it at one point in time, but we never got around to doing it. And you've done it, and I think it's a fantastic resource for the chess world as well. So it's just another example. I mean, to be a chess fan at the moment is no better time uh, if you look at throughout history to be a chess fan. People trying to wait in Australia to get a newspaper from a game in the Fischer-Spassky match that happened weeks ago, you know. That doesn't happen anymore. You've got real-time live coverage. So it's, uh, it's a real great time to be a fan of chess. Nice. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good point. It's a great time to be a fan of chess and a great time to be trying to, trying to improve. Mm, um, yeah. so, so last question, David. I know that you're not like uh, nose to the grindstone in your chess game right now, but, <laughs> but uh, our listeners always want to know how to get better. So do you have any like either big picture or small picture advice of uh, how, how um, people should approach um, improving at chess? Uh. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you already gave good I mean, insight in how to play higher rated players. So. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, I mean, so as, as you've probably worked out by now, I, I don't have much time to spend on chess, which means that I try to spend it on um, what in economics would call the areas where you get the most marginal benefits. So the ones where you basically you get your most bang for your buck. That, that's um, what I need. <laughs> yes. And uh, I mean, so I've got a few other tips that have worked for me personally, like the opening repertoire that I have now is not randomly chosen, but it's chosen to minimize the work I have to put in to maximize the results. But I wouldn't say that that's like the, the biggest tip. That's taken a long time. The biggest tip would be that the biggest bang for your buck you can get by far is end games, um, particularly in this, the, the way that we've, um, we've changed the time controls a lot now so that often you don't have the second or very rarely do you ever have a third time control now. Uh, you really need to know from... A much earlier stage in the game, uh, what sort of end games might arise from your middle game structure, and whether they could be good or bad, and being able to make these these early judgments based on these early heuristics that can only come from studying end games. Um, but my 
my second piece of advice, which sort of relates a bit to the first, is that if you don't have much time, uh, and then chess is always going to seem like work when you have to study, you got to do the things that you love. You got to keep the enjoyment. So when people ask me how they can get better at end games, I always recommend. There's this book by Van Perlo, uh, this uh, Dutch. Uh, well, he was a Dutch chess enthusiast, shall we call him, because basically for decades he collected clippings from interesting chess endgames that he analyzed himself and eventually put them into a collection. And you learn so much from this massive book, but it's all fun endgames that he found that he thinks are interesting. So you never get bored reading this book, but you can improve your endgame knowledge at the same time. And I mean, so there's a bunch of other different types of specific examples that I can quote, but the general principle is basically you want to work on things that you know are going to give you the biggest benefit, but you want to do it in a way that you're not going to get demotivated quickly wow and that's sort of my own philosophy that seems to work for me so far that's great advice do you remember the the title of that book by the dutch oh it's van perlo's endgame and then i can't remember the last word i think i think it's uh could be manual or endgame tactics i can't remember exactly okay well in the google age i'm sure that's you get full credit (laughs) but van perlo v-a-n and then his last name p-e-r-l-o and it shouldn't be too hard to uh to whip it up Excellent. Okay. Well, David, uh, I, d- I don't have any more questions. Um, if anyone wants to uh, reach out to you, is there a way that, that they can do that? Uh, actually, uh, I just realized that on my on my website, which, as I told you, is kind of in a messy place at the moment, um, doesn't even have a contact form. But my, uh, my professional um, website, as in my economist website, does um, have a contact form. So you can get to there from from davidsmerton.com, which is my chess website. There's a link to economics, and then you can find the contact form. But I'm always on Twitter, as you uh, as you observed before, so you can always you can always get me through there as well. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll link to both of them, and I just want to say I, I, I reached out to David for his, uh, his economics through his economics website, and since you had a job, I didn't feel too bad doing it. If, uh, <laughs> if you hadn't <laughs> been hired yet, <laughs> if you hadn't been hired yet, I would have felt bad. Like, no, I, I don't have a job for you, but I have some free work that you that, that I'd like you to do. Um, uh, look, this is this has not been work at all for me, Ben. Like I said, and I don't want to harp on too much about it, but I think this podcast is super cool, and I really wish you good luck with it. I hope it. Uh, I hope you can continue it, and I hope it. Um, becomes quite popular in the chess world because I think it deserves to be. Cool. Thanks, David. Well, I'm having fun doing it. So, uh, um, okay. Well, good luck with everything um, and we'll, we'll keep an eye on your blog and Twitter. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. To hear more episodes, give feedback, or suggest guests, go to perpetualchesspod.com. If you like the show, please help me out by telling your friends and giving me a high rating on iTunes. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Podcast Network.